0: Look, I woke up during surgery. I know something went wrong. You need to call him and tell him something's wrong. I remember my vision starting to get very difficult to see stuff and, and it was getting worse. And I realized, you know, that, at that point, I knew I was dying. They gave me my rights three times that day. I asked several times for them to call my husband and the same thing, no, no, no. And I was afraid. To be honest, I was just afraid. I did not want to die alone. And so she says to me, she says, well, that's very selfish of you, Marianne. You've been here, and you've got that little girl to take care of when you die.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Unless you've experienced it yourself, it is hard to fathom the cruelty and abuse by some doctors and nurses on sick, vulnerable, and dying people. It is hard to reconcile that the ultimate helping professions can have so many people who exhibit truly sadistic and sociopathic behavior. To understand how ubiquitous medical abuse and neglect is in our healthcare systems, We only have to look at the recent example in the news of the death of Joyce Echaquan, who live-streamed abuse by nurses in the days before she died. Unfortunately, Marianne Martin-Smith knows what it feels like to be dying while being medically abused. Or perhaps tortured is a more accurate description. Marianne went to the hospital for simple back surgery and expected to be out the same day, but without back pain. But what happened to Marianne is like something out of a Stephen King novel. A surgeon unwittingly slices open Marianne's arteries, causing blood to pour into her abdomen, squishing her organs and causing immense pain, which nurses and doctors ignore in spite of Marianne's pleading for help. When the medical staff finally acknowledge Marianne is dying, it is one shocking error after another. The medical staff have to bring Marianne back to life three times. Not wanting to die alone, Marianne begs the nurse to call her husband, and the nurse tells Marianne to stop being so selfish. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to Patreon. Dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Marianne, and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Marianne's experiences with the healthcare system.
2: Great. Thanks, Marianne. So, my first question, as always, is where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
0: I grew up in Huntsville, in Muskoka, and a large family. We basically grew up off the land, so it was um, busy, busy, tough a lot different than it is now that's for sure
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no and, doubt yeah
0: i have uh, four sisters and one brother and both my parents have passed away cancer so that kind of sucks but i'm kind of glad they're not here to see all this stuff happening
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i bet so growing up in huntsville which is sort of a, a resort area
0: yeah it's a huge cottage country and from a very small population like 22,000 up to probably a million now in the summertime. <laughs> so it's a little crazy in yeah. the summer.
2: And so what did you do after high school?
0: Um, I traveled after I went to uh, British Columbia, I lived there for a little while and I was really young when I went there. Um, I was not what I was thinking <laughs> except for uh, I was ready to go out in the world at 16. So came back to Ontario, just odd jobs and stuff like that.
2: And so today we're gonna to chat about how your life intersected with the healthcare system. So take us on that journey.
0: Well, it's quite the journey. I had injured a bat, my back. Um, had problems with my back uh, like most people do. And I was keeping fit and stuff like that to keep it at bay and uh but i really injured it this time i was sleepwalking and fell down the stairs we think that's what happened because it was a pretty significant injury so i just thought it was the same old injury just acting up for uh but it was really bad the pain it was a 11 centimeter rupture of my uh l4 l5 disc, somewhere like that it took me seven months just to get an mri and a really terrible addiction to narcotics by the time I got to see a specialist. So <laughs> I did not want to have surgery and I did not want to go to this particular doctor. I don't know if I can say that or not, but it's true. But at the time when I found out how bad the, the surgery was or the the injury was and my mother had found out she had cancer. So that was my focus. I said I can't and she had asked me to take her to the her appointments and stuff. Uh, because I could I had the time and and the resources at the time. And so um when I found out that I could have a surgery, it was supposed to be day surgery, you're in and out. And I thought that he just he said you don't you know, walk out, you walk out of here with pain for you pretty well. And most thing that you're gonna experience is a little tingling down the leg. I said, but I'm gonna walk out and be able to help my mom. That's all I cared about. I put my personal feelings in that little you know, those little hairs and you get the back and you know, something's not right. Put all that behind me and did and the surgery, uh, which was the disaster.
2: And, and it was back surgery, but what, were, what, was, he, what was the surgeon going to do?
0: Um, so it was a, uh, supposed to go in uh, and do laser surgery just to remove the scar tissue or, or the tissue that was impeding on the, the nerve roots of my just down my one side of my leg was affected
2: sorry how did that surgery go
0: uh it was a complete disaster i know a lot of people don't believe this but it was a moment i i I told i told people before i left that something bad was going to happen including my five-year-old daughter i said i don't think mommy's coming back i drew a heart and and one little piece of heart on the inside of that and told her i said that's where mommy's going to be I told and I told my neighbor, I said, not coming back. My husband and I actually got into a fight with about it on our way to town. And I was really, I was really hurt when he dropped me off and I said, Don't, don't leave me. Said, we took our daughter so that she could go to the museums. So, you know, I said, Okay, fine. But there was a point where sitting and and the doctor started walking up and as God is my witness, everything went into like slow motion. And all I could think was, oh shoot, I'm in trouble. And I, I did told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing much better. I don't think I need this surgery. I'm sure you he heard that before, right? People trying to last minute. And he said, no, 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 you know, we'll go in there and we'll look. And if we don't, we'll, well, we don't need to do it. So again, I just put my personal feelings aside. And then in the surgery, I woke up during the surgery. Heard a bunch of commotions. Uh, I remember thinking, I'm really glad that I couldn't feel what was going on, and I couldn't see anything. I just could hear everything. I heard the uh, the female voice, you know, you need to get out now, and then the male voice, and pretty sure I recognized his voice. Said, No, 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 I'm almost done. I'm almost done. And she said, No, now. And then that was the last thing I remember till uh, uh, between 8:30 and 9 o'clock was starting to come out of the. Anesthetic, and before I could see anything, everything's still dark. You're trying to wake up. I feel horrible pain, wrong, and my body's literally screaming, something's wrong. <laughs> and I'm I'm not kidding about that. You, your body knows; it's telling you something's very very wrong. And and as soon as I could verbalize that, I told the nurse. I said something's very wrong. I said, "This pain is bad, I'm not supposed to be in this pain, and the pain's not in the spot where the surgery was. It was on, on my left side, in just above the groin area, in that area, and it was very sharp and very bad. I could feel my body already starting to struggle at that point, point. and I told the nurse, all she did was give me a shot of morphine, which I still can't figure out why, and when it came back out of that, it was worse, and I told her again. I said, look, I woke up during surgery. I know something went wrong. You need to call him and tell him something's wrong. I heard her on the phone with him, and he literally asked her. I was yelling at him, and he heard me on the other phone because he said to her, "Oh, well, is that her? And she goes, yeah, yeah, that's her yelling. I went, there's something wrong. Something's wrong. And that was 9, 9.30, and at that point, after about four or five times freaking out, and tell them something's wrong and then only getting needles i realized i'm in trouble and i need my husband here <laughs> and so i said please call my husband and that would be before 10 in the morning yeah before 10 i i started asking to call my husband and she she's no no he's coming back to pick you up say surgery pick you up in a few hours oh so this and was so- all
2: happening in the early hours of the morning your surgery yes.
0: yeah that was the first surgery of the day so yeah this all happened very early in the morning okay yeah after my husband dropped me off and i remember my vision starting to get very difficult to see stuff and, and it was getting worse and i realized you know that at that point i knew i was dying at that point i knew it i i asked several times for them to call my husband the same thing no 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 he he's coming in a few hours just leave him be and i remember she's pushing me to recovery and all my focus on to see what time it was. And I can't remember exactly what time it was now, but I'm pretty sure it was before 10. It was nine. And I was calculating in my head how long she had told me he's coming at two, but he wasn't due back till four actually. (laughs) But in my head, I thought it was two o'clock. So I'm going, okay, all I have to do is hang in there till two. And so I went to recovery. And as soon as they started moving me around, things seemed to excavate. At, at that point, I started feeling pressure in my abdomen um, and having a harder time breathing. And again, ex- I expressed, all this time I expressed, there was something wrong, something wrong. You know, I kept on giving morphine. At one point, I actually wrote down, no more drugs. Stop giving me drugs. I wrote that down. And, and I still have it. I think my husband has a paper. I'm not sure about that but I wrote it down at the point I can't see, I can't speak very well, but I can write, I can write left hand and right hand while my eyes are closed. So that came in handy. (laughs) So I wrote that no more drugs and please call my husband, but still nothing happened. So in recovery, um, different staff. So I'm explaining to them, you know, something's wrong. She seemed to be a little bit more concerned, but then all of a sudden she, same thing. Same thing, she gave me more drugs. And I just looked at her, I said, what the hell did you just give me? And, cause I knew this is it, that here it comes, you know, here it comes. Yeah, so I crashed and, and uh, it's, it's a wild, wild ride, let <laughs> me tell you. And all I could think of was all oh, my kids, you know, I had five kids, I have six now, um, but at that point we had five and and we had our little girl that we adopted with us that day and it was my pride and joy my other ones are grown up they're in university also could think I was yelling I went, i'm a mommy don't let me die <laughs> and that's what i was yelling there's this really one nurse there um really nice young man named chris and he looked me in the eye and he said marion look at me just look at me and i did i looked at him and calmed down and tried to focus and then that was it. Crash and boom. Yeah,
2: when, so. when you say crash, what do you mean by that? What's happening with your body I during code,
0: that? Um, I coded, that it was a cold blue. So I, I guess I, no one has really sat down and explained any of this to me. All I ever done, um, the only reason I know is cause we had to go and get my reports. This is the only reason I, I well, I knew that I had crashed because I had experiences, and plus, you know your body's dying, you know when you're dying. I didn't know how bad things were until I read my report. So I woke up a few times, same thing, but I was noticing my stomach, all the pressure there, and this new pain was on my right side, way up here, and I oh, what is happening? I actually started thinking uh, around two o'clock that I might be bleeding on the inside want Geez, this is. you know i could feel the pressure in and out and also I was in this room the last thing i remember it was it was four o'clock I'm around just before four and there's this young doctor standing beside me and i woke up and then what the hell's happening what happened my stuff my stomach was way out here and i i have a very flat stomach always have i could be a big girl but my stomach's always been flat and all of a sudden i might nine ten months pregnant with twins and i'm i'm not kidding not exaggerating i'm trying to talk in between breasts because he can't breathe and he says oh wasn't it like that when you came in <laughs> yeah yeah it's at it, it, the point i literally wanted to grab him and slap him in the face oh, are you kidding me i said go get a needle poke it in there i bet you it's full of blood because you, you know what I want. at this point I'm, I'm really not sure he's actually a doctor I look over in the corner and I see uh, a couple of men standing there in suits, you know. At this point, I'm starting to get paranoid, where the hell's my husband? I, I knew I crashed, I remember I crashed and I went, my husband should be here, what? And again, at one point I had, um, before that, sorry, I had actually, I uh, was in a hall and they were transmitting and they stopped for a moment I had a piece of paper still in my hand. I was writing notes to the nurses, telling them something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Call my husband! Call my husband! Call my husband! And I wrote out my husband's number. There's this little kid standing there, and I threw the paper at him and I went, "Please call my husband." The kid picked up the paper and he looked at me, and I, and he, he, he just—I felt so bad because the look of sheer fear in this little kid's face, like, what, "What's going on? I went, Help me! Please call my husband." You know? I felt really bad. He took the note to his mother, and the mother took it to the security guard, and then then nothing happened. (laughs) Finally, my husband arrived at four o'clock. It's so funny. He was on his way into the hospital, and the hospital he gets a call from the hospital that he needs to come here. Yeah, yeah, pretty ridiculous. So we get he gets there, I guess, and they just said, "Um, "Your wife died." (laughs) <laughs> he's got my uh, daughter in his hand and they just come up and said there's three of them including the minister they gave me my rights three times that day just and they came in and said yeah your wife died but we got her back but she's not going to make it you need to come and say goodbye He was like well what the hell happened i'm supposed to walk out of here so yeah he got there and was the biggest relief i've ever had in my entire life when i heard his voice he actually walked past me and I heard him, heard his voice and the, just a sigh of relief. He, you know, the, a huge sigh of relief. I hear him walk in and then he goes, oh, I'm sorry, and then walks out and he thought he had walked in to a woman having a baby. Until he looked back and he saw, he saw my side pole recognized him, him you know, and he just, that was it. What? Get her into surgery, find out what's wrong, you know. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of things that I don't understand that are simple to me and, and just common sense. And that's what I don't understand. I don't, where was the common sense in there? Somebody wakes up from a surgery that's supposed to be painless, in a lot of pain, and dying. You think something went wrong? Not once did that doctor come and see me and to find out. I I swear to this day that if he had come out and done just the chest, the abdomen, and he would have felt what had happened? So what happened, turns out, is the doctor did the surgery, he went in with the tools and somehow went right through to the other side into the pelvis area and got hold of both iliac arteries and tore them. Did't just cut them, he tore seventy five percent of them. So this is actually still a little piece of my ankle stuck there from the artery it's pretty ugly actually
2: so uh for folks who aren't familiar laparoscopic surgery means there's just a little bit of an incision and they put the tools in and are able to watch via camera what they're supposed to be doing
0: yeah yeah according to what what i've learned it's a pretty popular um surgery laparoscopy laser surgery i think they call it we see it advertised on TV all the time, which is kind of salt and wound. <laughs> and what happened to me is uh, extreme rarity. It wasn't ever discussed the possibility. I think um, having already felt scared about that surgery, if that was a possibility, I honest to God would not have, that would have been a straw for me to say, no, I don't care what anybody says. I'm not going for this surgery, but all this, all, the, all the specialists, all of them say, you know, this, in, in their entire lives, the career, they've never seen this happen, but they've heard of it. It sounds kind of contradictory to me.
2: Wow, Marianne, that's just, I'm just like holding my breath to find out what happens to you next. So your husband arrives and they tell him, your wife's died, but we brought her back. And then how did things play out the rest of that day?
0: Um, I was rushed into surgery. 11, 12 hours surgery, I want to hear something funny. I can describe to you, I know this went, but I can describe to you exactly what the equipment looked like in there. I remember, I remember consciously thinking, Oh, I don't have a heartbeat. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's, that was wild. Anyway. So, uh, go ahead. Uh,
2: so, sorry, Marianne. So, do you think during this that second surgery when they're trying to repair what the damage they had done do you think that you were awake for some of that and that's how you're able to hear and know no. what was going on or out of body experience
0: yeah yeah i think i had to be out of body experience because i shouldn't have been able to see any of that equipment i mean i was at that point i was more dead than alive well obviously but what they had to do is is they cut all the way just below oh, my breastbone, all the way down, all the way down. <laughs> and, and it was full of blood. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. But what happened was the pain in here, it, all the blood went up here and squashed everything. So my, my kidney got squashed pretty bad, and my liver. And it, it, it still to this day feels like there's a, a, a big hard ball stuck up inside there. So it hurts uh, quite a bit all the time. And that never went away. I have nobody has any answers for me. I don't know if they're just afraid to talk, or you know, I think most of them are just afraid to talk.
2: So, you're having this uh, emergency repair surgery that takes 10, 11 hours, and you had that out of body experience. And then, how did that surgery turn out?
0: I have to go only by the report. So, what happened? Um, they call it massive resuscitation. I guess it was pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, they left, they, they couldn't close my stomach because my body couldn't take anymore. And I was put on life support. I could hear people talking all the time. You know, you hear everything that everybody's saying, which is really strange. By that time, my husband called and they said, You call her family, you call the family and you tell them you know, she's not going to make it. Come say goodbye. And uh, my two biological children um, were in university. They had come from Ottawa, and when I woke up, I remember everything, I don't remember, when I was trying to come to, I I felt like if, and I could see, to me, it was like two nurses holding me down, trying to drown me, and I could hear the nurse muffling, just breathe, and it's okay, just breathe. And so I finally relaxed, and I realized I was on life support, so the machine was breathing for me. So that's how it feels when you come out. My kids were there, and I couldn't talk, of course. I had tubes. Uh, everywhere, and and we have quite a sense of humor in our family. My son, my son says to me, he goes, "Mom, you look like a Borg <laughs> from Star Trek," and and I knew it was going to be okay because my first thought was, resi- uh, "Resistance is futile." I actually got a piece of paper and wrote it out and spelled it right. <laughs> resistance is futile, and I thought that is so appropriate right now because it's true. But every time I laughed or anything, the machine go off, and then you know, you're gonna kill your mom. <laughs> so uh, that was was an odd feeling. Um, but my my kid's sense of humor uh, really was the key to me surviving the rest. Of what I had to go through for the next few weeks. So.
2: So yeah, describe those next few weeks of.
0: What happens? is uh, your brain is like your your world's turned upside down no one will tell you what happened and that is the most frustrating thing it's like what happened to me oh you know no and and then they would get mad at you for asking that but half the time i forgot i had already asked it you know (laughs) there's so many drugs there's drugs to keep you alive there's drugs to keep you in pain they tried to put me in a medical coma i don't know if they thought they succeeded but i heard everything and i, I remember at one point it was uh, i was not doing well um i have no idea of time uh, what day it was It was a few days after i think and I, I was having a really bad day and i remember the nurse telling my husband you know this is probably it and you know say your piece and all this and and she probably and i remember concentrating everything. Everything I could, on just to squeeze his hand, and then I heard him. He goes, "She squeezed my finger." <laughs> so for all those people out there who think their their loved ones or can't hear, you, can't hear you, you know, if you think she squeezed your finger or he squeezed your finger, they did probably. <laughs> it's just not an easy thing to do, and you hear everything that goes around. The pain was unimaginable, uh, really hard to describe to people, and. Uh, I feel that my heart was really, really having a tough time. So my dad used to call me scatterbrain when I was a kid, so he tried to, he to try and organize all your thoughts. So this is the the, the method I use to try and, and keep my thoughts and, and focus on my body. So you know, having a bad heart day, I would focus on and pretend, you know, I'm holding my heart and we're talking to the heart. You know, so another day would be like I'm having problem, bad pains in my eyes or, you know, you can tell my kidneys are doing really, really bad. So that's how I got through that. One one little problem at a time. Uh, not little. I mean, sometimes they're massive. And I'm, at the same time, I'm dealing with parts of my mind going crazy you know, still going, what happened? Why are we here? Then you throw psychedelic drugs like morphine and whatever else they were giving me in there and then you've got a whole whole new ball game of crazy <laughs> so and paranoia set in and uh it didn't help that i had some pretty nasty nurses in the icu because they shouldn't have been there at all <laughs> and so that just added to it at one point i i thought they were trying to kill me and hold me for ransom and <laughs> but the whole time <laughs> you know that little voice you have in your head tells you you know don't no, yeah right you can say you know i want to have this drink we'll say but your voice says you know you shouldn't have that drink Or right don't lie to us that that real voice in the head that never lies to you and you can't lie to it. that's the only thing that never got affected by the drugs it's really hard to explain to people but um really you have to be conscious to be able to do that it was really hard to stay conscious so uh, I would say, okay, this is crazy. These things aren't happening, Marianne. But in a split second, I would the drugs would hit or something, and a wave of of crazy came along, or I'd fall asleep, which was the worst thing, falling asleep and then waking up and then everything starting all over. You know, where am I? What what's happened? That was really tough to deal with. Um, it could have been handled a lot 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 better than it in, than it was. Um, at one point, uh, it got so bad, I actually tore, this is an ICU, I tore all of the, um, all the tubes. And you're talking, I had an entire, my entire abdomen was open. They used, they actually used a brand new uh, way to try and keep it closed using rubber, rubber stitches. It was funny because a lot of doctors come on and say, that's fake. There's no such thing as those and, and it wasn't, it was the first time they were ever used. I wouldn't suggest it again, it smells really bad. So uh, I did. Uh, they had had, I had my t- hands tied uh, at one point. And, and I woke up and I went, okay, this is it. I'm ready to die. I'm gonna die anyway. Uh, Cause that's what they kept on telling me in there. And what happened was my husband, my husband never left my side. And he went home this night. And I said to the nurse, I fell asleep and, and, of course, woke up. Where's my husband? Oh well, yeah, he, you know they repeated it all over. And I, and, and I'm sure that's very frustrating for them. It is so for the patient. And, and I said, well, no, he needs to be here because I, I knew he was having a bad day. And I was afraid, to be honest, I was afraid. I did not want to die alone. And again, <laughs> and so she says to me, she says, well, that's very selfish of you, Marianne. Because you know he's he's been here and he's got that little girl to take care of when you die. Um, That was devastating for me uh, because I really I'm a guilt-ridden person already, so that was a really bad night. And when I fell asleep, I forgot about the conversation, but the paranoia didn't leave. Uh, Like at that point, oh okay, no, they they want me to die. They they want me to die. They're trying to kill me. This is my whole thing. The only thing that would make sense to me, and not necessarily true, but that's what made sense to my burning I guess I went crazy because when I woke up, I had my hands tied, and and that just sent me right for the loop, and no one around. And so I bent down somehow. I have no idea how I did that. uh Use my teeth to get that undone. Pull out the IVs, and I'm still on life support. Okay, <laughs> and tubes everywhere. I I pulled them all out. I pulled the tubes. So I had three pumps on the inside of my abdomen to keep um, that constantly ran to keep the liquid. It's like a really bad bruise, there's always liquid and stuff building up. And I guess there's a bit of an infection there. So this pump was running. I had three little pumps, suction pumps on the inside. So I I don't know how I did it. I disconnected those. The only thing that I couldn't get off or out was my um, catheter. So I just dragged it along with me and I made it. Over the railing and all the way to the window. And what I was doing, I remember this clear as day. I was, I was banging on the window because I thought my kids finally made it outside and they were safe. And I went, just go home. You're safe and together. It's too late for mom. And I am just saving my kids and I know that they're safe and so I can die now. You know, as long as I know they're away from this place, not here. Um, that was my reasoning. I remember it clear as day, even though I know it's crazy. Is, as...
2: wow, Marianne, that is just shocking that you've had to go through that. So, what ha- How long ago did that happen? October twenty first, two thousand nine. What have been the long-term effects, if any, on your body?
0: Surviving uh, abdominal syndrome is pretty rare, so not a whole lot of things To compare it to, it's been difficult. Um, I have about 10 percent of use of my life that I had before. So, what happened was, I had lots of surgeries to finally get this all closed up. And, I, and at that point, I decided I, I needed to come home. Um, I wanted to come back to Huntsville. I because everybody was constantly telling you, You're not going to make it, you're going to die. And at the point, time, I, just, I wanted to do what if I'm going to die? I wanted to die at home. That's exactly what I said to this doctor, even though I started having other complications after that. I don't even know where to begin. Uh, I have a problem regulating my temperature. I have what they call honeymoon syndrome. (laughs) It's a little bit embarrassing. So (laughs) I'll let people look that one up, okay? Just look it up yourself. (laughs) And I finally got to the hospital in Huntsville in December, just before Christmas. I was only out for actually a day and then landed right back in for a couple more weeks. Then, um, that was during that flu season where they had to, the stomach flu. They had to close some of the schools because of the stomach flu. I did so well being in all those hospitals, being transferred and careful. It took five minutes of somebody being, not paying attention to catch that flu. So that was February 2010 at that point. Um, I caught that flu. It was horrible. Um, so what it ended up doing tearing the entire incision. We didn't know at the time, but we I knew it but it literally ripped all the entire thing open. Now, because I had passed away so many times and had so much trauma, they could not uh way too risky to go in and fix it that soon. I had to wait like two years. Is what they said you need minimum two years you'll never make it through a surgery like that, so I get I did my best to wait, but it was horrible, but everything yeah my my abdomen was just lumpy here, stuff sticking out stuff sticking out there, and then it's painful it still is so um two thousand eleven I had to go back for surgery and the entire incision on the inside much to their surprise was herniated so they patched me back up with um Lovely mesh. (laughs) That's a different story. So um, mesh not going well. Uh, Could be worse though, I I have to say. It could be a lot worse, but my body doesn't like it. And because it basically affects the entire abdomen and all the surgeries on the entire abdomen, I don't have a lot of movement. So I can't bend down, I can't stretch, I certainly can't run. And you're talking to someone who grew up as an athlete. And very active, and very active in my kids' life. So I feel like my poor daughter, daughters now, um, have been ripped off. One of it is. and and my grandkids now, they get ripped off too. No matter what I try to do, I uh, I, I keep hitting the walls. You can kick them as hard as you want. And you think my head would be strong enough to go through them, but it's not. <laughs>
2: yeah, I recently interviewed a woman about her mesh in implant or i guess that's what they call it mesh implant and just how horribly it's impacted her life and they can't really take all of it out because now it's grown into her organs
0: yeah yeah i'm just experiencing that now i think the problem with all this is that um the doors just close on you everywhere that's what it feels like anyway so now you have all this terrible stuff happening, and no one will sit down and tell you why, because they can't. Because all of a sudden lawyers are involved, and everybody shuts up, it was like even, like, I didn't get a lawyer right away, but they had lawyers right away, and and everybody's, like, obviously told to shut up, you know, and it was really funny, because I was being transferred from Huntsville to Toronto, and nine nine people came out and whispered to me to get a lawyer. I'm missing a lot of stuff that happened in the hospital uh, just because uh, it's kind of unbelievable. I mean, that mistake was, it wasn't was the only medical error that I would experience, other than being able to crawl out of uh, a bed in ICU when it's one nurse to one patient and no one was around. And I still remember that doctor yelling and screaming at them he says, This is why you never get between a bear and her cubs. <laughs> That's what he compared mother bear that was trying to protect the cubs. Felt really bad for him that night because he had to take me back into surgery and do the whole thing all over again. Um, to me now, death is not a punishment. It's not a terrible, horrible thing. I'm not afraid of death. I am afraid, however, how I'm going to die. Uh, so it's really hard for me to sleep for I have insomnia and. I swear I I'll die before I go into hospital. It's hard for me to actually admit that because I don't like being any, in any weakness. And 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 I realized I got really really sick with this flu uh, last spring. I remember being oh dear, I I don't think I'm going to make it through this one. And I still refused to go to the hospital. I only had to go to the hospital because I went to my doctor's and fainted there. <laughs> That's how I found out how sick I was, and I had pneumonia and and all this other stuff. So would you call that? Paranoia or uh, I don't know what you call it.
2: Considering what you've gone through, that would just be good thinking.
0: Yeah, run away. But you know, I, I, I don't like feeling that way because I actually have to depend on my doctor and the only thing keeping me alive is really it or, or is the medication. Uh, it turns out that, uh, Oh, while I was in the hospital after I finally got an ICU and down to down to the recovery room, what I noticed that any patient not getting out of the bed more than one time a day or needed too much help got sent off to a recovery. And as soon as that was sent to me, I went, there's no way I'm going to a rehab hospital. I just panicked and I went, that's it, I'm getting out of bed. And I don't care how much it hurts. To me, pain is just something that you, you've got to tolerate. So I started walking around and around and around so I didn't have to be shipped off and I could go home. But what happened was I uh, started getting uh, another pain in just below the area of the injury. And so, again, I went out and I told them. and said, this is a little bit more pain than it should be and it feels funny. So I complained several times that night and come in in the morning and the last nurse came in a male nurse and he, he looks at it he goes it's fine i said my leg really hurts really bad oh can you give me a, a, at least something i could pay in and he goes no you gotta go to the bathroom it's fine and 15 minutes later the round the doctors are making their rounds and doctor comes in and he just they just panic my leg is i'm not kidding i didn't my skin actually tore, so my leg was this swollen and and I actually dragged that thing into the bathroom, and then all the way back. And he says, "Why didn't you tell the nurse?" And I I, thought, "I told them how many times last night." And I said, "No nurse was near 15 minutes ago." So what happened was I had a blood clot, a uh, complete blood clot. Oh God, that's painful. So I'm dealing with all the squashed organs, disfiguring like you wouldn't believe. Still not knowing what happened to me, and now again they're not listening to me and. I'm, I'm paying for it again. Not them, me. That's pretty ridiculous. I am actually embarrassed to tell people that that happened to me twice in the same hospital. And so that did not help my paranoia at all. What they what they had to do is actually put me on some psychotropic drug to, and I was starting to calm down by then. I, I was calm enough to know that I shouldn't tell them that I'm paranoid. <laughs> so yeah. But, uh, then you've got all these problems, internal problems. I now have problems with my blood and apparently regulating my sugar down there. I didn't even know. I, I knew that I was really, really sick uh, with a fever. I had a really bad infection and the drugs they had to use, I got to go back because I forgot to tell you something important. I'm one of those people that um, have very small roly poly veins, they call them. So it would be trying to draw blood uh what one point i had 30 something different holes and they had to call specialists from, from different hospitals just to try and get an iv and because the chemistry in your body after you die is very you know they're trying to keep it at a certain level i guess so they're always testing your blood so point i had an iv in my toe i had an iv in my neck i had an iv inside of my head i think but um so what they did is they, so they put in pick line this is the third thing that happened
2: I'm sorry, Uh, tell folks what a PIC line is.
0: Uh, A PIC line is when they go in arterial. They put a, uh, it'd be like an IV, but the IV actually goes into your arterial line, um, an artery, and it stays in there. So it has, mine had four shunts, which are uh, four different different types of drugs, spots where you can inject stuff. Because I think the antibiotic, they had you inject two different antibiotics at the same time. Uh, which is the the antibiotic is very very painful just to go through that. I mean I'm dealing with all this stuff and then it, it it was really horrible feeling that antibiotic gave me. Anyway, um, so I had to deal with that. So wheeling me down, it has to be done in surgery I guess surgery room. I I remember still thinking I'm 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 not aware or conscious and I hear everything and I and I'm crying because of the conversation that they were having about me. And I went, why can't they see me cry? You know, I couldn't figure that out. I could feel the tears, but why can't they see me crying? Why can't? Why isn't anybody listening to me? I was getting really frustrated. And so they're talking about putting this pick line. This one uh, female, I guess she's an intern. I have no idea. She says, "No, I don't feel comfortable doing this. She's been through enough. So I've never done it before." And he goes, Oh, it doesn't matter. She's not going to make it anyway." And sure enough. It didn't, it went right through the artery, and all the bells and whistles go off. And wow, shit, what else is going to happen? <laughs> but I made it through that one too. And um, I had the scars through that, and at that one point, the uh, pick line got infected. And because of all the other stuff going on, the nurse that didn't notice it, I had to point that out. But I was cleaning it myself <laughs> because I thought, oh, have got enough to do, I must have well just cleaned this myself. Which is a uh, very, very deadly thing to have. And get an infection in your pick line. Yeah, there are all kinds of I had that pick line for a couple of years and it never, ever worked. Then we asked for a shunt. And I'm going to quote what the doctor said to me. He goes, We already spent over a million dollars on getting you here. Or well, I said, I don't want to put a shunt in. So I'm not sure if you meant, I don't want to put a shunt in and risk of your life. Or, I don't want to put a shunt in because we've already spent enough money on you. <laughs> it's, it's been um, a battle. Like um, that's me and not anybody else. Uh, that's just my mom's teaching. She's better than you, someone that can't handle it. I'm not saying that I can handle it, but I'm um, handling it all around. I try to just take one day at a time. That's the key.
2: That was going to be one of my key questions to you is how are you managing to get through this? What do you do? What do you say to yourself? And and you just told us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it could be worse is my famous saying. If you ask anybody, what is Marianne's famous? They'll tell you that. Oh, she says it could be worse.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. So even though your quality of life is pretty low, it could be worse.
0: Yes. Yeah. I have, uh, I have most of my marbles. I did have a stroke, two strokes, sorry. So the only thing that that really affects, well, not only, um, affects my vision. I can't read. So any movement from side to side is actually painful um, because the stroke is by the nerve in the the eye and my short-term memory. So if I was talking to you now, for instance, and I napped this afternoon, I would not be able to recall this or it would be a very vague memory. I would not be able to tell you. So the concept of time has just gone out the window for me. Yeah, I, I live in a nice spot. I, um, we built My husband built a house here a few years ago, my land my, where I grew up on. So I feel pretty privileged and we have a great family. Um, yeah, we have adopted, uh, adopted daughters, her half-sister, came to visit for a couple of weeks in 2010, actually, just after my mom passed away. And that's the other thing I wanted, um, the thing that affected me most was um, losing my mom. She didn't need to. That phone call she got that night was what killed her. And and my family, half my family feels the same way. Um, some of them don't have anything to do with me at all, even though it was my fault. but. It really was. You know, you know, my mom had lung cancer. which Just a small lump in a good area, if you have to have it. And she, um, she didn't smoke most of life. She was going for the surgery. They give pretty good chances. That's the last thing I remember anyway. It, she had to have the surgery, and but she had to quit smoking. So, with the help of Wallace, especially me, because I don't smoke or drink, we. We got her through it she stopped smoking and drank and we went on vacation and you know she's in a good spot and then all of a sudden she got that phone call and and yeah, that was it <laughs> you know um as you imagine as a parent getting that phone call yeah she i only got to see her a couple of times before she passed away because i was on ox- oxygen for a couple of years i actually lived through uh, not only this Really horrific accident of abdominal compartment syndrome, a DVT, and then I had um, six pulmonary embolisms. It took out a great deal of this long. And what else? Oh, yeah, two strokes <laughs> that affect my memory <laughs> and my concentration. I call it a little hole in my head where the words just fall in there and they're gone. <laughs> or am I halfway through a conversation and it falls in that hole? I'm really glad it didn't happen today.
2: <laughs> yeah, you've done really well. and I can see it has not affected your sense of humor.
0: No, no. I think that they thought sometimes I was crazy when I was trying to be funny. Uh, I actually said to them, You watch Money Python at all? I used to love it. Which one? <laughs> I was in the ICU and <laughs> yeah, and they're coming to talk, and talking to the doc. I didn't know what possessed me to say this. So I, and I'm doing this. I went, not quite dead not quite dead yet but i feel like i'd go for a walk <laughs> definitely all looked at me and only one person got it and he couldn't stop laughing he says i have to phone and tell my wife you just said that because they're monty python fans He goes, we just watched it two days ago here you are dying <laughs> on life support but i managed to get that out yeah no there's too many stories or a lot a lot of stories a lot of things that happened r- remarkable things experiences but um that's probably a different conversation than a long one <laughs>
2: okay well yeah we can definitely circle back and uh, delve into that if you'd like because what you've already told us is just so to be honest so overwhelming uh, to what you've gone through that yeah i'm just sort of in shock so i can only imagine how traumatized you are but i it seems like In spite of that, you're dealing with it pretty well.
0: Uh, I think so. Um, Well, some days it's pretty bad. (laughs) I I don't deal with it all well. A lot of things that still trying to figure everything out and how to move. And have to get answers for myself. It feels like you're on your own. And and, and it's very frustrating for your family doctor, especially because you had to go to the city. And a lot of times, the the doctors and the senior specialists don't bother sending sending reports back to their patients. I feel really bad for family doctors that 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 are in this situation. He has no idea what happened. He he had months before he even found out what happened. It, it's uh, I find it really it's I don't know the most frustrating thing to go through is when in medical error is the third leading cause of death in. Well, not in North America, actually, and, and, but nobody talks about it. And there's no, there's no repercussions. It's the only profession where you don't have to res- take responsibility for your errors. People look at you, it's funny. People will look at you and you tell them a medical error and they kind of roll their eyes thinking, oh, you're just going to sue. What people don't realize it's almost impossible to sue in Canada. And it's been, uh, it'll be 11 years tomorrow. That I was hurt, and to to me it's it's easy. Yeah. But you throw in all the money that these guys have backing them, they just they just try to bully you. They just try to bull, bulldoze you. over. And it was like it's kind of obvious, you know. You went in there, you you did a surgery that you shouldn't have been doing with the wrong equipment. yet yes, severed two arteries.
2: Yeah, it'll be shocking for people to learn who haven't had your experience with medical error, the medical system will be shocking for them to learn that the way the political medical system is set up is so that patients cannot, except in very rare circumstances, get anything close to justice. And you're absolutely right, the doctors are not held accountable. And us taxpayers, Pay for their high-priced lawyers to defend them against the harm they've done to us.
0: That is like a, that is a thorn inside of a. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, yeah, that is really annoying. But I'm the type of person you can obviously you push me, and I'm just going to push back harder. You know, I'm not going to lay roll down and die just because I don't. I don't care what people think. I'm not family, not friends, not strangers. I can believe the things that people say to you do they're in that situation <laughs> or hopefully not but the, the, the numbers are staggering i said to the politician once and would it not be um would it not be top news if a, a jumble jet of people canadians died every week and He goes oh god that would be awful and i went well that's almost how many people are dying from preventable medical errors i mean and that's the only ones that, that are people are admitting to the numbers don't make sense look at a hundred thousand people dying every year. And there's less than 3% of any kind of conversation, less than 3% of those people will get any kind of conversation. What you don't realize is that OHEP doesn't cover a lot of this stuff. And here's the situation that people don't think of. I, I have now to stay in a very strong um, blood thinner and my body hates chemicals. So it was tough getting that. So finally I'm, I'm on this, I started with tinzipperin. I'm, I'm taking those and then all of a sudden we go to pick up last, last summer, last fall, we go to pick up this prescription. You no, know, they're they're all out of tinzipparin. Of no warning, no nothing. Just nope, you can't have that. For someone like me who 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 doesn't tolerate medications very well and whose system's very uh well. Kind of, yes, it's a big worry. You know, switch drugs. and we we had a huge, huge problem on pills before with the with the the blood thinners. So that's how I ended up on Tenzaparin, which worked for me. So and anyway, suddenly we were out of this drug. And you did all my research, and that's how I found out that uh, China was having a health problem because that's where it was all going. <laughs> so I finally it was Christmas, and finally they put me on this new drug, and that seems to be going pretty good. I, I'm staying on it now. so, this is funny, okay? Tins of parent went from $1,200 a month. 1480 Okay, so last summer it was $3,500 a month to cover that drug, which ODSP pays for. The new drug is $144. ODSP refused to pay for it and told me I had to go back on Tins of parent now that it's back. You deal with stuff like that all the time. Um, finally, we got that straightened out. Situations like that and then not knowing, um, not having any to be able to go to say, okay, you know, it's still very, very painful. I still have a lot of really scary moments. You gotta decide how far you want to go with your health and and your quality of life. That's something's on your mind all the time. You know. Yeah. And I try to I try to push that fear away and, and that's how um I concentrate one day at a time. Let's just get through this day and, and not worry about that. <laughs>
2: That is some wisdom, Marianne, and uh, I just can't believe that you've survived what you've managed to survive, and uh, it's an incredible story that you've been through. Well, thank you, Marianne, for sharing your story. It's uh, so powerful, so frightening, so edifying on so many levels about the system we have to work in, and just the proof that because the medical error happened 11 years ago, you're still dealing with it every day.
0: Yes, yeah, I am. You have to deal with it on a lot of different levels. Not having a doctor, uh, not a family doctor, but not having a specialist explain why it, the, the, there's so much different types of pain. And why does it hurt here and here, and all of a sudden here, and you know, and then people start thinking you're crazy. How could you be that happy in that much pain? Well, you know what? Um, I just remember that day having your organs and everything crushed is extraordinarily painful. I would have happily given birth 10 times in a row. <laughs> it was that painful. And during one of my experiences, I had a conversation for a moment, I guess, and said, decided that that moment, if I do come back, uh, it's going to be a painful life, I knew that. I honestly say that I, I knew it was going to be a painful life. I accepted that and I do, um, I just say pain's a part of my life, it's my friend.
2: <laughs> but Yeah, so yeah. There, it sounds like you've got a certain level of acceptance going on.
0: Yeah, I try to bump that up every once in a while. Still narcotic-free, I also take his Tylenol-3s when I need them and I uh, use medical marijuana. Maybe that's why I'm so happy. (laughs) There you
2: go, people. Another word of advice and wisdom. Thanks, Marianne. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Rest hard.
0: You too. Take care.
1: Well, a big thank you to Marianne for sharing her absolutely horrific experience. It is a wonder she has survived and is still surviving what she had to go through. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.